listening to Best Served Cold, a Born Millennials podcast. The Australian true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Formerly Egypt's 36th most popular true crime podcast, hosted by Tama J and Laura Lease. Sit down, relax, grab a drink and enjoy this week's episode. Oh my goodness. Hello. Wow. Would Welcome you look at this? Welcome to 2022. You come here often? Season three of Best Served Cold. That's Season it. three. I know. How it's weird is that? Considering three years of pandemic. Is it three? Well, yeah, technically if the end of this year will be three years. That's what I mean. This is, this is yeah, the third year. Yeah, this is year. the beginning yeah. of the This is season three year. of COVID. Mm. Well, if you're new around here, welcome. Hello. To season three of Best Served Cold, yeah. the true crime podcast where we drink wine and talk about crime. Uh, I'm one of your amazing co-hosts, Laura Elise, and all I have to say is wah-wah-wee-wa. <laughs> and I am Tama Tor, and though it's been three years of this show, I feel like I'm 30 years older. That's fair. So. Also probably because I won't stop running around the house saying wah-wah-wee-wa for yeah. like four days. I don't that know is where it started. your newest catchphrase of, yeah. a, sh- of a, a movie that's been around for over 10 years. What is it off? Borat. Oh, okay. See, yeah. I don't even know what it's off. Yeah. I just think I heard it on TikTok probably. And now well, I you hear, you've heard me and Tom, my friend Tom, wah, wah, saying it we were. constantly. And now I can't stop saying it. Well, anyway, um, yeah, welcome back. We actually have like quite a bit a of bit to catch stuff to catch you up on. Yeah. So I reckon we'll probably just basically jump straight into the show and then fill you in on everything at the end, yeah. as we are want to do. Yeah. Just quickly, if you are new around here, we do like to let people know at the start that we do tend to swear a lot on the show. So if you are someone who doesn't like the cuss words, we would kindly ask you to exit through the gift shop and not leave us a one-star review. That would really make our day. Yeah, but do uh, buy yourself a nice plushie of yeah, Laura. Yeah, get a souvenir. Yeah. A fridge magnet. A best serve cold plushie. Yeah. We should, just, we should make that little skull just, plushie. That would actually be really cute. Yeah. But just don't leave us a one-star review, please. I'm yeah, literally begging of you that. because you have been warned officially. It's not a very nice thing to do. Well, I'm going to just nominate myself to go first because oh, my yeah, okay. laptop battery is going to die. Oh, a race against time. It's a race Love against it. time. So let's see if I still remember how to be a podcast host. Oh, yes. So today I'm going to be covering someone that I've been wanting to do for a while, but it's just one of those ones where it kind of just is a bit... I don't know, it's icky, it's, there's children, yeah. and I just... It's not a very fun topic to go over. Yeah, so, oh, and there's the dishwasher, just lovely timing. I'm really sorry if you can hear the dishwasher. We have moved house, so we are dealing with uh, uh, different noises that we're not used to. So I apologise if you can hear the dishwasher in the background of this. But today I will be covering Andre Chikatilo or the Roskov Ripper. So we have another Ruski. Oh, I love it. So I apologise in advance for, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say the definite mispronunciations of Russian names that I'm going to make, but love I'm going to do my best as always. It's going to happen. So Chikatilo was born October 16th, 1936 uh, in the Ukraine to parents Anna and Roman. Andre Chikatilo was born October 16th, 1936 in the Ukraine to parents Anna and Roman. So he was born in the part of Ukraine that at the time was within the Soviet Union. So I'm being honest, I, I don't know that much about the 
existence of the Soviet Union and if it still exists. Um, but he was born while Stalin was in power and he had a fairly tumultuous childhood. So most of the people in the area that he lived as well as his own family were incredibly poor, with Chikatilo's family being farm labourers who all shared a single room and one bed. So growing up, he was a frequent bedwetter and was often severely beaten by his mother when his accidents were discovered. And it was then later realized later in his life that he actually had a brain defect that affected his ability to control his bladder. So it wasn't even oh, interesting. like he just was a kid. He actually had like a like defect. A that, genuine condition. Yeah. So at the time of his birth, due to poorly laid agricultural plans in the area, poverty and starvation was very common just because there was not enough food. And often around these parts, stories of murder and cannibalism would circulate around. Chikatilo claims that he was told by his mother that his own brother was kidnapped, killed and eaten by starving neighbours, although that story has never been properly confirmed by anyone. So when the Second World War began, his father Roman was drafted into the army and the family was basically left to fend for themselves during the German Blitz. Despite Chikatilo's father being drafted in the army and being away for the war, in 1943 his mother Anna gave birth to a daughter, which many theorise was the product of likely rape at the hands of German soldiers given the timeline of uh, the birth. Yeah. So when the war finally ended, Roman was – poor Roman – he was sent to a Russian prison camp for his crimes of surrendering, even though the war was over and, like, what else was he supposed of to course, do? yeah. And the family were forced to publicly denounce their father and basically call him a coward. Oh, wow. So after a very rocky start to life, Chikatilo grew into a socially awkward and self-loathing teen who struggled to socialise or hold any romantic relationships due to his chronic impotence. So he fumbled through the first part of his life, making it through school, compulsory military service, until he finally got a full-time job as a telephone engineer. So in 1963, after being introduced by his sister, Chikatilo met and married, and here we go, Fedosia Odnacheva. Oh, nice. And despite his difficulties with his anatomy, they ended up having a son and a daughter together. By 1964, he decided that he kind of wanted to do something a bit different with his life. So he enrolled as a correspondence student at Rostov University, where he studied Russian literature and um, philosophy. He successfully completes his degree and goes on to become a teacher of the Russian language at a technical school in a suburb that I'm not even going to try and pronounce. Although incredibly knowledgeable on the subject, Chikatilo was not the best teacher, completely unable to control his classes and regularly being ridiculed by his own students due to his quiet and modest personality, which a lot of people kind of think that that combined with him being socially awkward and the fact that he was essentially completely impotent is what led him to target the age group that he did. So despite all of this, so all of his personality traits and the other things that I will get into, he holds on to his job as a teacher for almost 10 years. So he works at three different schools and works as a teacher for 10 years. So it's May 1973 that the first recorded crime of Chikatilo's is documented where he sexually assaulted one of the teenage students at the school he worked while they were swimming in a pool for a school event. So we kind of like dragged her over and groped her. Oh, okay. Only a few months later, he assaults and beats another female student who he's locked in a classroom with him. For these incidents, he receives no punishment and continues to openly touch himself in front of students and receive no punishment. That, that seems 
a little bit. Um, yeah, a bit of a red flag. Yeah, a bit of a re- that's kind of off. However, after receiving multiple complaints from parents, he was told by the school faculty that he could either quietly resign or be fired. So he opted for the first option and he left that school quickly finding another role as a teacher. Uh, It wasn't until 1981 after the school received, again, numerous complaints from concerned parents that Chikatilo was finally let go as a teacher and took up a job as a supply clerk in a factory, a job which required him to travel across the Soviet Union quite extensively. So just jumping back a few years, in 1978, after being let go from the second school he worked at due to staffing cutbacks, Chikatilo moves to a town called Shakti, where for some time he lives alone while he waits for his family to join him. It's here that his fantasies begin to escalate, and it's alleged that he would often spy on the neighbourhood children through the window. On December 22nd of this year, Chikatilo's first documented murder occurred. Nine-year-old Yelena Zakatanova was lured to an abandoned building which uh, he'd been able to somehow secretly purchase, despite not having that much money, where he attempts to rape her. However, after being unable to keep an erection because he's completely impotent, he brutally stabs her and dumps her body in a nearby river. And this could have almost been the end of his reign of terror had things in the in Russia and the Soviet Union not been like a little bit funky at those times. Mm. So an eyewitness prov- provides a description to police of a man who looks exactly like Andre Chikatilo and spots spots of blood from Yelena were found outside the property that he'd purchased and neighbors around the property confirmed that they'd seen him there at the night of murder. Despite all of this, a young man called Alexander, who had previous convictions for rape, is arrested. His wife and friends provide him with an ironclad alibi, saying that they'd all been at the house together the night of the murder, but after being threatened with also being tried as Alexander's accomplice, they told the police that the alibi was a lie. And then after confessing to the crime under torture, Alexander was tried and eventually executed for Yelena's murder in 1984. Jesus, okay, that really escalated quickly. So after this, Chikatilo has no known victims for three years, probably because he gets very close to being caught. Yeah, he's like, I'll Um, I'll just chill out for a bit. However, after getting his job as a supply clerk in 1981, his nine-year spree begins. So on the 3rd of September 1981, Chikatilo murders 17-year-old student Larissa Chichenko after picking her up from a bus stop near a library. After luring her away under the guise of having some drinks and relaxing with him, he um, again attempts to rape her but is unable to. He strangles her to death and then mutilates her with his teeth and sticks because he doesn't have a knife before abandoning her body in the woods. Okay. And when I say, look, you guys who've been with us for a while know I don't really like to go into a huge amount of detail. When I say mutilated, use your imagination. Or don't. I prefer not to. Yeah, maybe just... Just gloss don't. over it, yeah. So Larissa's body is quite quickly found the following day after she's reported missing. On the 12th of June, uh, Lyobvo Bruck, who was 13, was murdered after being dragged into shrubbery, stripped and stabbed to death while walking home from the store. When her body is subsequently found dumped and examined, a total of 22 knife wounds were found inflicted to her head, Jesus. neck, chest and pelvis region. Keeping in mind, this is only his third murder so he's escalating very quickly in a big yeah, way steadily so uh Lyubvov, oh my god that's really hard to say L- Lyubvo, 
becomes the first victim of what local police dubbed the Forest Strip killings. So after her murder, it seems that Chikatilo no longer has any desire to try and resist or repress his urges, with a further five victims between July and September of 1982. Quickly, police are able to establish a pattern that the victims are usually children or young teens who were runaways or vagrants or just kind of had generally not super attentive parents. And they're usually picked up at public transit stations, so like train stations, bus stations. All of the victims are brutally stabbed and strangled. So due to the nature of the Soviet and state media at the time, the stories of the murders aren't really uh, talked about a lot because obviously the Soviet doesn't want to have anything that could possibly reflect poorly on them. So it's kind of very hush-hush. And the stories kind of begin to take on a life of their own with rumours circulating that the victims were killed by werewolves or witchcraft, while other rumours speak of satanic cults or groups who were killing to harvest organs. It's not until August 1984, by which stage 30 people are dead, that the murders begin to be properly publicised. Yeah, that's a, I mean... By that point, you're kind of like, well, where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. How do you hide that 30 murders, even even during a, a time of war? Also, don't forget, it's 1981 where he does the first crime, and by 1984, he's killed 30 people. Yeah, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. That's quite a bit. And as he murders more and more, the crimes become more and more violent and gruesome, with the victims' bodies being cannibalized, often having organs removed and partially eaten. Yeah, that's so he would do weird things like bite off their tongues and then like run around their bodies, like waving the tongue in the air, like just really weird stuff. Yeah, that's really and many of the victims also have, or many of the victims at the beginning of the spree also have severe eye wounds, which lead police to believe the killer was gouging out the victim's eyes. Oh, god. So by September 1984, Chikatilo had murdered an additional 23 men and women, all brutally stabbed and cruelly dumped. On September 13th, 1984, two undercover police officers observe Chikatilo attempting to pick up sex workers. They follow him through town and eventually arrest him, where it's discovered he had a small theft claim against his name for stealing two rolls of linoleum from his old clerk job. Huh. So police also search his belongings and find a knife with a 20-centimetre blade, several lengths of rope, and a jar of Vaseline. Jesus. Which is, you know, totally a normal thing for some dude to have in his Yeah, you're just in your back pocket. Police soon realise that he matches the description of a man who'd been seen with one of the victims shortly before their death, and saliva and semen samples were taken. However, due to what a lot of people suspect is a clerical error, the blood types are shown to be different and he's released. So basically my understanding of how they tested samples back in the the 80s, 80s, it wasn't so much a direct match. They'd test the blood type. So it wasn't like a DNA thing. They'd be like, oh, well, the killer has blood type O positive and you have blood type A, so it can't be you. So after a brief reprieve, likely again because he's almost been caught and it spooked him, he begins to murder again, claiming another two victims. At this stage, the investigation is beginning to heat up and as the world as a whole grows to know more about serial killers, a psychiatrist is brought on board to help build a profile in 1985. Now get this, this is verbatim the translation of 
some of the profile created. So it is a 65-page psychological profile describing the killer as a reclusive man aged between 45 and 50 who had endured a painful and isolated childhood and who was incapable of flirting or courtship with women. This individual was likely well-educated, likely to be married and to have fathered children, but also a sadist who suffered from impotence and could not achieve, oh sorry, and could achieve sexual arousal only by seeing his victims suffer. The murders themselves were an analogue to the sexual intercourse this individual was incapable of performing and his knife became a substitute for a penis which failed to function normally. Wow, that's like spot spot on. on. Yeah. So over the next five years, Chikatilo murders an additional 22 victims. My God. Again, with his crimes having escalated with many bodies being mutilated beyond recognition, many women having their breasts or reproductive organs removed and partially eaten. So finally, the net begins to close in when on the 6th of November 1990, 22-year-old Svetlana Korstik was murdered by Chikatilo in a wooded area near a train station where an undercover officer is stationed. The officer named Igor Ryab. Ryagkov saw him returning from the woods to wash his hands and face in a well. When he approached Chikatilo, he also noted grass and soil marks on his clothes, as well as a red mark on his face and a wound on his hand. However, after speaking with Chikatilo and having no real reason or evidence to arrest him, he's released, but a standard report is filed with the um, blood mark and grass and soil marks noted. So when Svetlana's body is found a week later, Igor is summoned to provide information as he was the officer on duty near the train station where her body is dumped. And he helps other police officers go through suspects of interest. Chikatilo's name comes up and many officers who'd been involved in the case and his arrest back in 1984 recognize his name and face. After cross-referencing with Chikatilo's former work schedules, police are able to place him in multiple towns and cities at the same time as the murders. So they put him under police surveillance and after six days of surveillance, during which time police witnessed him approaching and attempting to strike up conversations with women over and over, he's eventually arrested on the 20th of November 1990. So on the 29th of November, two officers begin to read out the psychological profile written about the killer and under this pressure, Chikatilo eventually confesses and breaks out in tears and over the next two weeks confesses to a total of 57 murders. Jesus. On the 14th of April 1992, he was brought to trial and as he entered the courtroom, he was placed in an iron cage to protect him against the families of the many victims who were present at the trial. The trial is bizarre, with Chikatilo acting erratically and borderline insane, pulling down his pants to expose himself, claiming that he's pregnant and lactating, screaming at the court that he's not a homosexual, and then backtracking on some of his confessions to multiple murders despite having already confessed and provided graphic details to the police. Yeah. So after a lengthy court proceeding of which the first two days are literally just the judge reading out the charges laid against him, that's how, how many there much were. there was, yeah. Finally, on October 14th, 1992, Chikatilo is found guilty of 52 murders and just under two, le- two years later is executed by firing squad. And as part of the investigation, what the police do find out is that the reason that a lot of the victims at the start had our eyes gouged out was because there is a Russian uh, wives' tale that people who are murdered have the image of the killer embedded in their eyes. Ah, So he was gouging out their eyes so police couldn't see that. But then I guess 
when you murder like 20 people, he's yeah. like, this is bullshit. It's probably so not stop a thing. doing it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was con- uh, convicted of 52 murders. He confessed to 57. And then I think after the trial before his execution, he confessed to a bunch more. And there's also a heap of unsolved ones that a lot of people like kind of attribute to. him yeah. to. Um, so he's one of the most prolific serial killers I've ever really read about. Um, and yet you don't really seem to hear a lot about him. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's that, it's definitely up there with like, and it's the same thing. Um, I think I can't remember what his name was, but ages ago we covered a Brazilian, uh, serial killer who like the numbers were way up there. Yeah. Yeah. So same as him. Um, and I just did also want to say that normally I really like to, make a big point of listing out all the names of the victims, but when there are 57 yeah, it's victims, a, um, yeah. you know, I don't really want to make you all sit, sit and all listen to me say out and probably butcher 57 Russian yeah, names. Yeah, especially when it's all in Russian. It's but there are, sadly, 57 victims, all kind of ranging in age from nine to about 18, men and women, mm. all died horrifically probably very scared and in a lot of pain and it's very sad that yeah. I guess you don't get to hear their stories a lot. But that's me done. Wow. With 9% battery left. Very, ha- And we did it. Yeah, we got, we got there just be- right before. Actually, you probably have a couple more minutes left of that battery because you got an actually decent MacBook. Yeah, well, it's only newer ones. decent. It's just new. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't know if I call yeah. it decent or MacBook. It's, it's decent. Piece of shit. I'm just a slut for Apple. <laughs> All right, we'll have a little break um, so we can do our pee-pees and poo-poos and... Go yell at the cats. Get our cats to stop running around the house. That'd be great. And uh, we'll be back after that. the break yes uh so my case uh this episode back is a very or well, relatively recent one but it sort of wraps up extremely recently okay. uh and is the case of jasmine lovett and robert leeming so this all takes place in calgary canada um jasmine lovett was a 24 year old woman who was living and kind of had a a sort of relationship with a man named Robert Leeming. He was the owner of the house that she was living in and she was paying uh, board or rent to him. So during this um, situation between Jasmine and her baby's father, they had recently split up around the her age of 24. And um, during the situation, she had to figure out her living conditions. So she... While she was doing this, she was looking for, you know, someone to date perhaps. So she's adding adding her dating apps back into her phone and she eventually links up with someone named Robert Leeming. Eventually, uh, after some chatting between the two people, they grow close together and they begin sort of kind of dating. About a month into a casual relationship, 
um, Robert learns of Jasmine having issues with the current housing situation to which Robert offers, you know, why don't you move in with me, pay a little bit of rent, something not too substantial, something that you can afford. Hmm. And uh, for a while, they just kind of live together, a relatively normal relationship. You know, Robert's taking care of Jasmine's daughter, Alia, um, and whenever Jasmine has to go work or go to work or run errands and in return Jasmine also supports Robert and his own son who Robert has a son with his ex-girlfriend so kind of a normal you know situation kind of casually dating they're both you know single parents helping each other out Uh, a little bit of a backstory on Robert so Robert was the child of a British military officer um, and he was born actually in a British military base located in Germany uh, but soon after that, he moved back to London with his parents and spent most of his childhood in a countryside uh, little little stay in uh, Marlborough in, um, in London uh, with his brothers, Christopher and George. And at the age of seven, uh, this is where we kind of get into the... Ah, interesting. Okay. Uh, Robert develops a fascination with knives at the age of seven. Cool. And it was exa- exactly this moment doing my notes where I was like, there it is. There it is. So at the age of seven begins a fascination with knives and he begins collecting them uh, without even really knowing what they are. Now, I found this really interesting. His parents knew about this and were like, yeah, it's fine. Keep the knives. For whatever reason. So he's allowed to keep these knives. He has an entire collection of them. Uh, around the age of seven. And in the late 2000s, um, when he's, you know, much older, coming into life, he eventually moves on to train to become a heavy machinery mechanic and moves to the internet to perhaps find love. While on the internet, he meets a woman named Sarah who lives in Canada. She's training to become a teacher. And, you know, they speak every now and then, almost every night, accommodating for the time difference by sleeping, changing their sleep schedules to sort of match up with each other a bit better. They wanted to advance their relationship further. However, the obvious distance between them made that rather difficult and Mm. not really having that personal connection and seeing each other all the time. So Sarah was a, as I said, a training, a teacher in training. She couldn't really afford to put that on the line to be with a man she'd never even lived with before. So Robert applied for a Canadian residency. Now, Canada being a very large country and very reliant on its cargo transport, Mm. namely, you know, large trucks. um, It is a country very much in demand of heavy machinery mechanics. Okay. So he applies for the Canada uh, residency and he is granted it. Shortly afterwards, he moves to Canada, moves into Marlborough, from Marlborough to Calgary in Canada, living with Sarah. Soon after arriving, Sarah and Robert get married in February of 2013 and together they buy a house in the suburb of Cranston. The two bought sort of a bit slightly over their budget buying one of those, you know, those newly developed townhouses that kind of all look the same in those little sort of communities. Yeah. Every single one of them looks exactly the fucking same. Soon after this, they uh, would actually become a proper family and welcome a son into their lives. However, after all this sort of, you know, this is all wrapping up nicely for them. However, after uh, in 2017, the couple would actually divorce now, 
the reasons why sort of shine a bit more of a light onto who exactly Robert Leeming is. So in the official divorce papers signed by Sarah, in her very own words, she says that Robert had been emotionally abusing her throughout their entire relationship. Sarah claims that Robert called her crazy, useless and worthless and that she needed psychiatric help. He had also told her that she had ruined his life by having a baby that he didn't want, a dog he didn't care for and a life he didn't want. He would also uh, relate every single shortcoming or misconvenience, uh, anything that happened to him, it was apparently Sarah's fault, even if it had nothing to directly do with her. Robert also struggled with employment, so I learned that he basically struggled to keep a job. Yeah. Um, was fired, let go, moved between job to job to job. Often he was released due to stealing from his employer. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it. As well as being a frequent drug user. Now, towards the end of their marriage, Robert was drinking and smoking pot on a daily basis, which, not going to judge anyone, but. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, I can't really turn my nose. Well, I don't drink daily. No, drinking and smoking pot together. It depends how much. It's a lot, like yeah. a lot. Like, you know. A glass of red wine with dinner is very perfectly different to fine. A bottle I'm of talking red like wine. several pints yeah. and like getting fucking blasted on yeah, weed. That's, yeah, that's not good. That's um, not a good way to keep a job, obviously. On top of this, he was also charged with three counts of animal cruelty. Oh, no. To give you an example. Oh, do we need an example? We kind of do, yeah. He took the family dog, Axel, up into the mountains, tied him to a tree without any food or water, and Axel, unfortunately, eventually died. That's horrible. Terrible, yeah. All of this together led Sarah to believe Robert was a danger to her and her child. So, um, even at this point, Robert was still collecting knives. So, you can imagine... You know, Sarah's like, well, maybe I should get the fuck out of here. The crazy man with 50 million knives. Take a guess at how many knives he has in his collection at this point. So he started when he was seven. Can I have a clue? Is it under a thousand or over a thousand? Oh, it's under a hundred. Oh, okay. But like, that's still a lot of knives. Well, I don't know. I don't collect knives. I don't know. 60 knives. You've completely fucked this up for me. I'm sorry. It's It's a lot of fucking knives. All right. I have two. (laughs) Yeah, this guy has 60 knives. It's a lot of knives. That's was, a lot. I was expecting more. <laughs> okay. Think about one knife. Like you have one in your yeah. house. You are, you are go, hey, uh, I go to your house. I need a knife. I'm cutting up avocados. I need a knife. Where's a, where's a knife? Oh, just go in my room. There's a barrel of 60 of them. Pick one out. Have you have a pick? I agree. It's a lot of knives. I just thought you've was- just <laughs> fucked this whole thing up for me, and I'm really upset now. This is, you've I've been working so hard on this. Sixty fucking knives at this at this point in his collection, which is fucked up. At some point, he also branched out from knives and moved on to collecting pistols. Isn't that like super hard to do in Canada though? What guns? Yeah. No. Aren't Canadian gun laws like kind of similar to ours? I don't don't oh, think so. Okay. I don't believe so. I believe you can own guns to your heart's content. I, I'm not too sure about that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's as strict, though. Because that, ma- honestly, that makes it even more impressive that he was that willing to jump through hoops and collect. No. So, 60 knives and a s- selection of, of, of guns. 
uh, pistols that he has. And following um, the divorce, obviously because, you know, this is a terrifying person to be around, this actually led to a strict no-contact policy. Fair so, enough. obviously, the custody of their son went to Sarah, and Robert was only allowed to visit him during very under very strict conditions. Soon after this, Robert moved on to, you know, dating apps like Tinder, where he eventually met Jasmine. After Jasmine moved in, Robert began feeling again like, you know, he's repeating the same pattern. He's getting tied down, and then this made him very unhappy, so he goes back to onto his dating apps. He starts re-downloading all the same dating apps. So Jasmine obviously isn't an idiot. She knew something was wrong mm. and instantly noticed Robert was acting strange around her. Eventually, Jasmine would actually confront Robert and accuse him of cheating on her. And he would, of course, deny these accusations, but um, had no real way to prove it or didn't really fight to you know, keep the the relationship going anyway so while dealing with all these issues outwardly they would try to appear as a you know a happy couple mm. regularly going to family gatherings at um on family on jasmine's family side on one such occasion was the 14th of april 2019 so jasmine and robert attended a dinner with jasmine's mother kim and her sister genevieve Mostly the dinner was normal. Jasmine, along with her sister and mother, spent the evening playing with Aaliyah and and just enjoy their time together. However, this date is significant because it would be the last time that they would see Jasmine and Aaliyah again. On the 19th of April 2019, Jasmine's family had organized a dinner together. Jasmine, however, never turned up and all of Kim's calls to her daughter went straight to voicemail. Now, this, you know, obviously seems unusual to an outside party, but to Kim, this was very unusual because Jasmine was a very attentive person and would definitely give people a heads up if she was running late. Mm. Wouldn't let calls go. go. Yeah. This is two days have passed since then, and Kim is getting more and more worried. Yeah. So she decides to check in on Robert's townhouse. Uh, that's where she knows shit that she's staying. He's she's staying at. From the outside, it seems completely normal. You got uh, Alia's toys are at the front of the building, and there's two pairs of sneakers at the front of the house as well. She noticed this because the shoes were wet, almost like they just been cleaned. Mm. So she thought it was a rather odd, and that was that sort of stuck in her mind. She knocks on the door several times, however, there's no answer. Unsure of what to do now, she goes home and five days with no contact with her daughter, she eventually reports her daughter and granddaughter missing to the local police station. The police quickly launch an investigation into Jasmine and her daughter's disappearance and the next day they uh, go to Robert's townhouse, which is their last known residence. So they too uh, go to Robert's townhouse and they knock several times, but they as well get no answer. So they assume that he might just not be there. He might come back later. So they leave a notice on his door and they return to their car to wait until he comes back. Several hours go past. Robert never comes home and it's getting dark. However, the officers notice that the lights inside the house were turning on and off. So they assume, oh, he's in there. So they return back to the door and this time they knock a little bit harder Mm. to make sure they get their point across and they shout out his name telling him 
that they know he's in there. Yeah. Eventually, he comes to the door and he lets officers inside and instantly they notice that he's both incredibly drunk and high. And there's actually body cam footage that they released of this instance where they actually come into the house and they're questioning him. Okay. He's fucked. Like, ve- like really intoxicated. Off and off his face. Inside, Robert tries to imply that he's not seen or heard from Jasmine. Uh, he's has no contact with them. And when the officers ask him if they had maybe a fight or something, like that's why he hasn't seen her since, Robert denies that there was ever a fight. And he um, actually denies that they were in a relationship whatsoever. He kind of just rubs, you know, rubs it off as like a, she's a tenant. You yeah. Know? I've had, and he sort of says like, I've had tenants, you know, leave before and like, well, then the officer's like, well, you know, this isn't really a tenant. You you have a, a relationship with this person. He's like, no, no, they're more of a, you know, roommate. Mm-hmm. Um, so instantly they're like, I don't buy oh, this. Oh God, yeah. I don't, I don't like where this is going. So the four officers, uh, you know, they notice his behavior is odd and they sort of notice he doesn't seem all that concerned that someone who's meant to be his girlfriend uh, is missing. And he's even referring to them as more of a roommate. So a day after speaking with police, uh, with Robert, the police obtain a search warrant and they search Robert's house in the afternoon of the 25th of April 2019. A SWAT team arrives to arrest Robert, um, but when police attempt to enter through the front door they find it's not opening they try several times they even try pushing with real hard force and it just won't open whatsoever so they eventually gain access to the house through the back door there's a little veranda they access through and they make their way to open up the front door for everybody else before uh being arrested robert had barricaded his front door with barge poles so i don't know if you know what barge poles are but they're the sort of so. heavy machinery, like little poles, they're propped up um, where the door is. They're propped up to where the stairs are. They're directly mm. in front of the door. So they yeah. literally have no way of entering in without removing the barge poles. So uh, a little bit weird there, sure. Yeah. Um, and not only that, police would go on to find various strips of bacon placed throughout the house, just in random areas. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. My my thoughts exactly. They also find a locked padlock on the door leading into the master bedroom, and this is where Robert kept his guns and extensive knife collection. With all of this, however, they can't prove that any sort of foul play has happened, even though it's really fucking oh, sus. Yes. While under arrest, Robert claims that the last time he'd seen Jasmine and Alia had been the 18th of April, when the three of them had gone for a picnic near um, near, near Brug Creek. According to him, the they returned home the next day, and after leaving the house, they were not home when he came back. So Robert repeatedly denied being in a relationship with Jasmine. He told them that there's no way he could ever do something to a young mother or her daughter. It's not who he is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, while this dude is sus as all fuck, police have absolutely no evidence of Robert linking him to Jasmine and Alia's mm-hmm. disappearance. So they're forced to release Robert after 24 hours of his arrest. They drop him off to a shopping mall and he's told to wait while forensics are wrapping up you know, at his house. And whatever, he immediately goes straight to the pub f- for a few drinks, okay. like immediately. 
And this is where it gets really interesting. So he's having a few pints, gets soused, leaves. The media shows up and they ask him, would he be up for an interview? And he obliges. Oh, God. Yes. This is where we get all Chris Watts. Yeah. From the get-go, he's uh, asked how this experience has been for him. And the interview is kind of like, you know, how's losing your girlfriend for the past, you know, five, six days? How has that affected you? He immediately just sort of like, oh, you know, being arrested, it was so crazy. You know, like SWAT team picked me up and it was a new experience for me. And he's laughing, he's giddy. And like, he is drunk. But we're talking about someone who's been disappeared, like who's disappeared for the yeah. last five, six days. Uh, so it's jarring to watch. And I, I implore you, if you have YouTube or you want to watch it, do watch it because it is, it's one of those examples of like, you know, in hindsight, looking back on it, you, you know what happened. Mm. But looking at it like blank slate, it's just so jarring because you're like, this isn't how a human being is supposed to act. Yeah. So when he's um, prompted, uh, he briefly makes mentions along the lines of like, you know, if you've seen Jasmine or Alia, please contact the authorities. And then immediately goes back to rant about how the forensics said, you know, they would be done by today. And I'm just waiting for them to blah, blah, blah. So I can go back home, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So some interesting things to note. Whenever Robert's referring to Jasmine, so, you know, are you worried about her? Like, what's she like? He would speak about her in past, past tense. tense. Yeah. Oh, she was a great person. She was, was, was. Mm. Uh, his body language never quite matched the words that he spoke. So, uh, and, and he would often turn his head away when asked serious questions, you know, never making eye contact. Th- those kind of weird little things. After forensic analysis found literally nothing, Robert was eventually allowed back into his home. Though police were still determined to find Jasmine and Alia, and they believe he was still the prime suspect. Mm. So after sweeping through the area and surrounding forests, nothing turns up. Um, at the most they could find was uh, some surveillance footage of Jasmine and Alia on the fifteenth of April at a nearby shopping shopping mall. Robert maintained his innocence and throughout all the media interviews, claiming he was actually seeing another woman at the time of Jasmine's disappearance. So he has no real, you know, connection to her, whatever. Mm. However, you can you can one hundred percent see like a steady and gradual decline in his health and behavior throughout these different interviews. There's several of them, and they they stagnate through different mm. time periods. He just is not right. Something's wrong. So Robert was still the prime suspect to Calgary Police Department. They had no way to connect him to Jasmine's disappearance, however. They were a complete stalemate. Following the notes from several psychologists stating that Robert's body language during the media interviews indicated he was being dishonest, Calgary Police decided to launch an undercover operation against Robert using with uh, Child Protective Services. Uh, Now, this is kind of cool. The operation was called Operation Highwood. That is kind of cool. Undercover cops would pose as cop-hating informants to Robert, attempting to win his trust and learn whatever they could connecting him to Jasmine and Alia's disappearance. Now, in May 2019, two undercover cops approach Robert while he's walking out of a bottle shop near his house. They presented themselves as locals who lived in the area 
and they'd seen his interviews on TV. Now, they expressed their concerns to him and subtly brought up that they know someone who had discovered a bag of evidence that incriminates Robert of Jasmine's disappearance. Now, this sets Robert off. He goes, mm. That's actually, he actually takes the bait. So, what he does is he takes these two undercover cops to his workplace where he thinks he's not being, you know, monitored. Mm. And he, for several hours, talks to these two guys thinking, you know, they're just interested in this whole thing, reveals to them that, in fact, Jasmine and Alia aren't disappeared. They haven't disappeared at all. They're dead. He's killed them and buried their bodies. After they talk, Robert agrees to take these two undercover cops who he believes are just regular people, not regular, but to him regular, Mm. He drives 90 miles or about 144 kilometers from Calgary to Grizzly Creek. Long drive. Mm -hmm. Long drive. Leaving his car upon getting to Grizzly Creek, Robert takes the two men on a short walk through several trees. And eventually, Robert stops. One of the officers pipes up. Okay. Where to? Robert replies with, you're looking at it. Beneath their feet, through mulch and branches, lay a blue blanket. They were both standing on a shallow grave containing both Jasmine and Alia. Jasmine had a bullet wound behind her left ear and Alia had trauma injuries to her head. The officers noticed too that there was a strong smell of gasoline very prominent in the area. Right then and there, upon you know in- inspecting the grave and noticing the two bodies... The two officers formally arrest Robert for the murder of Jasmine Lovett and Alia Sanderson. Can you imagine these police officers like thinking that maybe they were going to get something yeah. and then he confesses and takes them the whole to point the gravesite. Was we need some sort of connection. Let's act like we hate cops. We think he's in the right, he tells them the entire story and takes them to, and the takes them to these two people he just wild. met. That either shows you one of two things, or both of two things. One, he's a fucking moron. Mm. Two, they're good cops. Mm. Well, he sounds like he's also Could a complete both. narcissist. As yes. Well. Okay. So, following the arrest, we can now understand the full timeline of what happened. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to go exactly through that. So the 16th of April, 2019, Jasmine and Alia are caught on CCTV footage at their local supermarket and return back to Robert's house. Later that day, Robert was looking after Alia while Jasmine was out of the house running errands. Now, Robert alleges that Alia fell down a, the flight of stairs in their front room. And according to him, he didn't realize the true extent of her injuries. So instead of taking her to a hospital, he just puts her to bed. Now, coming back home, Jasmine goes to check up on Alia, finds her in her bed, deceased. Mm -hmm. Jasmine confronts Roberts and the two of them have an argument. She's confronting him like, what happened? Did you kill my baby? Eventually, Robert grabs a hammer from the kitchen counter and when Jasmine isn't looking, strikes her at the back of the head. Jasmine falls to the floor, critically injured, but she's still alive. Robert then runs up to his room, picks up one of his pistols and returns back to Jasmine. Robert aims a gun at her head and fires. 
Robert then wraps the two bodies in a blue moving sheet, thoroughly cleans the, cri- the crime scene, and he fucking cleans it because mm. they found nothing. Forensics found nothing. And this is 2019. He cleans that place. On the 17th of April, Robert was spotted on CCTV footage filling up his car with petrol and a jerry can at a petrol station. At night, at 6 p.m. that night, seemingly after disposing of the bodies, he was spotted at a retail cannabis store. On the 18th of April, he was spotted dumping garbage in the dumpsters of his building complex. Now, of those items he dumped, a few of those were actually eventually recovered and they proved to be vital during the subsequent trial against Robert. Later that same day, Robert was spotted on CCTV footage again washing his car seemingly to sort of wash off any evidence. Hmm. Obviously, due to COVID and the difficulty of this case provided, uh, it wasn't until November of 2021 when Robert actually pled guilty to the murder of Jasmine Lovett. Now, he maintains his innocence that he did not murder Alia and pleads not guilty to her death, claiming it was an accidental death. Hmm. Now... Forensics can't exactly write it off as untrue that this could have happened. However, they state that it's extremely unlikely that due to her injuries and what they found in the autopsy, that Mm. that's what happened. Now, in January of this same year, 2022, Court of Queen's Bench Justice Keith Yamauchi found Robert guilty of both the murder of Jasmine and the murder of Alia, saying that the medical examiner's comments of Alia's fall weighed very heavily on the guilty verdict. He just couldn't see a possibility where this was an accident. Mm. When the forensic medical examiners were saying a fall could not do that to her. So he's currently in prison. He's not eligible for parole uh, until sometime between 20 to 45 years within his sentence, uh, according to the laws of Canada. And I believe it is a life sentence. So that's currently where we're at. Yeah, that just that just happened of January yeah, this literally. year. So really fresh. Super recent. Um, and you know, there's a huge time gap there. Obviously, like end of this is all happening around April of of 2019, and cases like this usually take a long time for trials to mm. build up. Anyway, it wouldn't have been till the next year that you probably would have seen anything happening. Yeah. But then, obviously, at the end of 2019, COVID hits. So you know. You saw the same thing with the Golden State Killer. Just, you know, it yeah, was just sort of took its, took its time, obviously due to COVID. Um, but yeah, that was that's the case of uh, Robert Leeming and Jasmine Lovett. Uh, unfortunately, for no real just good reason. I understand these men. Like, yeah. Just- fucking get a divorce. Like, he already had gotten a divorce. Like, it's, you it's know. It's Canada's own Chris Watts, you know. And yeah. they just think they'll get away with it. I'm like, yeah. what makes you think you're special, buddy? Yeah. And it's it's hard to sort of grasp where that need to kind of, you know, there's no history of like he's, a, he's attacked someone physically and murdered someone before. And it's like, I just need to satiate that. It's like, I'm in this shitty situation I don't want to be in. I've already been in it before. My solution is to what? Kill an infant? Which is almost what makes me, I don't know, that kind of, for me personally, does actually add a bit of weight to the 
accidental I don't know. The judge said it wasn't. The forensic person yeah, said it wasn't. They said so it they was so. And I've me, looked at the stairs as well. They're not tall stairs. They're right. probably. Listeners won't be able to understand this, but the stairs are probably the kitchen counter length. Like they go up a half a floor, basically. They're not right. large. Even for an infant, it wouldn't yeah. have been. Okay. She wouldn't have died from falling right. down them. Um, it's very unlikely. And the. Just the trauma that she 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 suffered through it, it just didn't seem likely that that was the case. Yeah. But yeah, that is the that's the case. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed, well, not enjoyed, but hope you guys enjoyed yeah, the episode. Good. Yeah. Um, and I'll return back to it. And it's it's great to be back. Turns um, out we can still do it. Yeah. No, we're still just as flawless as ever yeah i think there were lots of arms for both of us yeah but, you know we'll get we'll get better we'll get better it's been like three months anyway um that's the cases that's all that done if you're just here for the cases then please tune in for next week we'll be back with a brand new episode however if you like to hear about all the updates the all the various updates we have to give you guys um just a bit of a catch-up stay tuned yeah and just a bit of a shit talk then stay tuned so where to start yeah well, so so we we moved. We did. So just a quick apology. We had always planned on coming back on the 12th of January. That was the date we had discussed. That was the date we agreed on. That was before we made a kind of very split impromptu. second impromptu decision to move house. Yes. Which, long story short, was like the best decision we've ever made because we love our new apartment. We love the area we've moved to. We're paying less rent. It's just really all good things but we like decided to move on like the 20th of december maybe like a week or two weeks after we yeah uh something like that uh stopped the show for the year found an apartment super super quick like found it went and saw it and got it all in the same day like three days before christmas yeah so we were like you know obviously dealing with packing stuff up moving stuff in, setting things yeah. up. So we had set ourselves the 12th of Jan. Yeah. And, and just, then we moved on the 8th. Yeah. It wasn't. It was just not Yeah. It possible. wasn't going to happen. Um, however, the new place is great. We have aircon now. Oh. Which is fantastic. Which if you live in Australia or yeah. if you have traveled down under in summer, just it's living brutal. without an aircon yeah. is not fun. And it so. also makes doing these episodes much more enjoyable having mm. a bit more of like a, oh my God, the doors are closed. It's a fucking stuffy ass room. Like it's actually, we're, we're currently in our living room uh, working off of our dining table just because we're still in the midst of getting everything sorted furniture wise. Um, but I, I really like this, mm. this place and it's, it's just such a nice, it's been really great. Um, and, you know, it might push back the schedule a little bit, but is what it is. Yeah, so that was the first yes. pushback. Um, I don't know how much you want to talk about the second pushback. Maybe yeah. just like well, super briefly. Um, so then... Or I can talk about it. So then we were, we were ready to come back. We had a, a, a new... Well, we had the announcement like, you know... Yeah, we had date we locked in. We back. were ready to go. The day we were set to record, my grandfather, who had been suffering from lung cancer, went into palliative care. Where if you don't know what that is, it's essentially just the hospital where people go to gently ease their they way keep out of you life. Comfortable, yeah. um, 
so the Tuesday that happened, we got the call and um, basically was just coordinating with my father when I could possibly see my grandfather for the last time. And that took up a lot of the day. And then it was kind of just like, I don't know if I can record in under these conditions. Mm. And as the week went on, eventually my grandfather passed away on Thursday. So we kind of just, me personally, I just kind of needed some time to process that and deal with that. Um, my grandfather was someone I was very close with since, since, since the day I was born, he, he, we'd lived together. Um, and it was a, it's been a very shocking and, you know, time in my life. It's been very, a huge change. Mm. And A, I wasn't necessarily comfortable coming back and getting back into the whole headspace of doing this. I kind of just needed the time off. And um, just in general too, it was just such a process actually organizing and being with your family. Um, So yeah, that was a very confronting thing to sort of deal with. And now I feel like it's a good time to come back into it. We're sort of getting more into a schedule of things. And I feel like now is like the right time to get back into it. So, you know, I am... We, we would like to apologize for the delay on these episodes. It's just, you know, literally. Uh, life happens. Yeah, life literally fucking happened, man. Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of where we're at now. We're new place, um, getting back into the schedule of things. Just going to get right back into it, you know? Yeah, that's the plan. Yeah. We don't know. We haven't really talked about when we're going to start doing the mini episodes on yep. Fridays, we might need a few weeks to kind of get back into the swing of things before we yeah. start yeah. doing that again. We'll have a, we'll have, this is sort of, you know, new year, new me kind of thing. We've got, we got, a, we got a couple of things sort of in the pipeline and we kind of want to try out and. Yeah. We're, we're, we're making some changes to our work schedules. Yeah. So that oh, that's the other thing. Help. Yes. You. I quit, quit my fucking job. Finally. So that was, yeah, like the <laughs> another yeah. big friggin' life Yeah, we really moment. crammed a lot into January. Yeah, that that's uh, why this whole like, this whole process of getting back into the podcast has been, it's literally just been difficult to sort of find the mental capacity to do it mm. because we've gone through like literally three fucking huge changes yeah. in our, this, just at the start of our year. Well, because we moved, we moved house and we didn't, and it's our own fault. We didn't move the way we should have moved. So we had the moving van and we moved all the big things. And then Tama and I just kind of went like on the day we moved, it was a billion degrees and it was so hot and we just kind of wanted to be done. So once we'd moved all the big things that would only fit in the van, we were kind of like, oh, you know what? Like we can just go back and get the other small stuff during the week, which was an epic mistake because it ended up we would wake up, work all day, finish work and then immediately drive to the old place and be packing shit still yeah. for a whole week. It was a It was not fun. Not fun at all. Um self-inflicted, definitely our yeah. fault, but um know. but yeah, and then, you know, everything else happened and then yeah, just just last Friday. Just last Friday. Uh, what what was last Friday? 
the the funeral. Yes. And then um, that week the of the funeral on the Monday, I quit my job. Um, it was it's one of those things, it, and I was telling you about it. It it, it takes like something significant in your life to happen like that to sort of get perspective on yeah and give you the your entire push. life yeah and it yeah, and it, sure. it was that kind of you know being with your family and like and sort of seeing how like you know managers and everything react to you going through something like that mm. and realizing why am i putting so much of the of me into something like this yeah that th- isn't valuing that or returning it back to me. I think COVID had kind of already got the ball rolling yes. in that mindset for both of us. Yes. Like, kind of like, what's the point of like? Obviously, and I do recognize that. Obviously, what I'm a, the next thing I'm about to say definitely comes from a place of privilege. Like, neither of us grew up in poverty. Neither of us are from marginalized groups. We don't have kids. We don't plan on having kids anytime soon. So mm. we do have the luxury of being like. I would rather work less, make a little bit less money and actually have time to feel like I'm living my life because I feel like, especially with lockdowns, for the last two years, it's like you wake up, you have breakfast, you walk the 20 feet to your desk, you work all day, you finish at five, you fuck around for a couple of hours, you go to sleep, you wake up, you walk the 20 feet to your desk. And it's just like day in, day out. And while I love working from home and I never want to go back to an office, I just think having like not having the separation made it so much clearer that this is like such a weird life. Yeah, it is a weird. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, it is a weird sort of thing that we just accepted as being the norm. normal. And I, I can't remember if it was who I was having this discussion with, but I, I was we were talking about like why is it so odd for someone to get a casual job working yeah, it was, um, three to four days a week? You know, yeah, we were talking to our friends the other night when they came over. Like, why? To, like, no shade to anyone that no, wants to have a career. No. Yeah. Like, you do you. If you want to climb the corporate but, ladder, but why like, do we look at that as like that person's got their shit together? But whereas this person who's doing hospitality, yeah, yeah, and they have a fucking amazing project on the side mm. that they're working on or they or even if they, they don't, don't like even they if just, they just want to live their life they, like, they go do the, they go live their life they have those they have three four days off to like get their fucking shit together yeah at and the end of the day we are just like super advanced fucking monkeys yeah who has made us believe that we need to have a career i don't yeah. want to have a career i mean i actually do want to have a career but like in terms of like corporate i don't want to have a career yeah. i just want to like make enough money to comfortably live my life and actually fucking live my life because Mm. I don't want to wake up in, I'm already waking up. I'd always told myself when I was a teenager, I don't want to wake up and be 30 and be working a job I hate. So I've already failed at that. I'm waking up. Almost thirty. No, you still have working time. Working a job. You still have six time. Six months. That's not a yeah, lot of no, time. You still five have time. months. You you could be working months, a job that you five don't months. hate in five months. That's perfectly That's the goal. doable. But now I'm just like, well, now I don't want to. I don't want to wake up when I'm forty and still be working a job I hate. You know, yeah. I don't want to wake up at sixty and be like, oh well, finally we worked all those fucking years and we can retire and enjoy it. Like, no, sorry, yeah. that's bullshit. But like, I think I you also kind of just need the time to do that. And it's yeah. very difficult to do that with a nine to five Monday to Friday. It's 
you you don't realize it during, but once you, I guess, move down or you move, you do what I done. You quit your fucking job. Mm. And you don't. I have something lined up, but I'm currently at this point in time unemployed. Yeah. And it's not until you reach that moment where you go, fuck, all the things I can fit in when I'm day. not doing a nine to five Monday to Friday. Holy shit, this is crazy. Yeah. And I'm negotiating with like, you know, employers to do like 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. And it's like that, holy shit, that's going to free up so much time in the afternoon for whatever the fuck, mm. X, Y, Z. Like you really get perspective on things like that. that. Yeah. It's kind of like, and I know that this is a very cliched uh, metaphor, but it really is like the matrix. Like once you kind of take the red pill or the blue pill or whichever one you're supposed to take, like once that idea that it's something that you have to, like I can't believe I spent five years of my life because that was how long I was working in corporate prior COVID, five years of my life, Waking up every morning, spending an hour getting ready, spending an hour commuting to work, working for eight hours, spending an hour commuting home. I can't believe I did that and just accepted mm. that as that was what I had to do because there was no other option. Yeah. And now COVID came around and everyone's like, oh, actually, we didn't have to do that. Like we yeah. could have we could have been. It's, and now officers are trying to force people back. Exactly. Yeah. And people are like, why the fuck would I want to go back into yeah. an office? And that was part of the reason why I left my job is because they were trying to force yeah. me to come back in. And I was like, what fucking plausible reason do we have now? We've gone through the fucking trenches, man. Yeah, we've, exactly. We've been through, we literally lived through the whole, oh, fuck, we don't need to be in an office. This functionally works. From home. Everyone working from home. literally no reason to be in like an office. Like, literally, there's, there's no reason. If mm. you want to work in an office, yeah. go for it. Good for you. But you don't, don't tell me that to. I have to. Don't tell anyone that you have to. Yeah. But that makes no same, sense. Like it's the same scenario with like, because me, I'm currently trying to reduce the number of hours I'm doing. So I'm trying to reduce from five days to three days because we did the math and we were like, yeah, sure. We, we'll, we'll be putting a bit less in savings and mm. we'll have to maybe be like a little bit more frugal, but it's still a wage that we can well and truly live off. So yeah. like, why the fuck... Would I want to work an extra two days of my life? Because, you know, people go, oh, it's only eight hours. I'm like, yeah, but, yeah, but you, you know, in 24 most, hours in a day, you sleep yeah. for like eight it's to the ten most of those. productive hours of the day. Yeah. Because you get up and you like, you just why, you do whatever. Why would I want to sacrifice those two days so I can have extra money? Yeah. Great. So I have extra money and but no time no to, do time anything. to yeah. actually do anything yeah. with my life. So, yeah, yeah, I think I'm just currently living in like a constant state of existential crisis, um, which I've been told is kind of a normal thing when you approach 30. Didn't think I would be the type of person that would freak out about turning 30. Turns out I am. That's fair. Yeah. Watch this space. I'm one minor inconvenience away from a complete (laughs) mental breakdown. I would like to point out that the cat that was previously running around and causing quite a bit of ruckus is now dead asleep is dead asleep right by the table like past the fuck well, out well, I know something freaked her out she's propped her little head up also I have no idea how sensitive these mics are but if you can hear like screeching in the background <laughs> don't panic uh, we have moved somewhere where we have these really massive like hundred year old fig trees 
uh, right near our balcony and the flying foxes, which are very large mm-hmm. native Australian bats. If you're from the States, I would suggest Googling them because they're cute as shit. Very cute. Um, and they make these horrific high-pitched screechy yeah. noises and they sit in the trees and like eat all the berries and stuff. Very it's cute. very... um. They're like little winged puppies. It's very main character moment when you're... When at the... At dusk. At dusk, they all... There's a there's a giant Centennial Park near our house and they all flock from the park that goes across one edge of our balcony to the other. Just seas of bats. Mm, it's very cool. During like, you know, when the sun's going down. Like, you, it's such an atmospherical And we're on the moment. top floor now. We've never been... We've always had ground, yeah, either ground floor or like first floor, but like the ceilings are so low, it's basically. This is the highest up we've we've been. This is the highest up. Yeah, yeah. And I quite like it. You, you get a nice, nice view. Mm. And you never have to worry about flooding. Yeah. Half of Sydney is fucking flooded at the moment. Not yeah. us. Check out um our Instagram, and we'll probably up, update you guys on the new pad. Yeah, I was thinking that it would be nice to start putting some more personal stuff on the Instagram. Yeah, yeah. If you guys would like that, I don't know, maybe people don't give a shit. Who knows? I mean, you probably, I mean, it's a podcast. You're probably listening to this because you genuinely actually care. Well, if you've gotten this far, yeah. Yeah. If you've gotten this specifically this far, you, you really, you like me. You really, really really like like me. me. Oh, bless. Well. Code word. What's the code word of this week? Redemption or? Redemption. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Very <laughs> Send, um, very send a little uh, cowboy hat. Yeah, we are very behind schedule this afternoon. So it's currently midnight. Yeah. The day the episode comes out that we're recording this. Woohoo. So if we sound delirious, it's because we are. Yeah. Uh, but welcome back to the very first episode of season three. We're yep. very glad to have you along to all the new people. If there's anyone that's been like listening since day one. Thank you so much. You deserve a medal. Thank you so much. Uh, And we're really looking forward to seeing what the year brings and seeing what season three brings and Mm -hmm. what 2022 brings. And, you know, I've run out of words. Redemption. Redemption. Code words, redemption. Send a little cowboy hat just for a little added bonus. Okay. Little emoji Redemption a, or a cowboy hat emoji. Little or emoji. Both. Yeah, or both. Both is good. Do both. All right. <laughs> All right, anyway. Cool. That was a really super weird way to end it. Okay. I also forgot to say the socials at the start of the episode, but I will oh, say them all now. Fuck. You can follow us on all things social media. We have nice continuity across all our social media platforms at the BSC podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tiki Talk. Tiki Talkie. Everything. The clock app. Yes, the one that goes tick tick. Boom. (laughs) All right, we need to sleep. Okay. All right. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.